Well, I get to try that too. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, Joe, you're, you're hired, man. <laughs> Other than, you know, this little issue with the height of the music stand. Okay, this compared to last week is a short little episode, nine verses instead of 32, but I thought we had some fun last week. And uh, this week I'm calling this sermon, We Don't Talk Anymore because it's a story of language being confused, people being scattered. I could not come up with a connection from that to Charlie Puth and uh, Selena Gomez, so I leave that as homework for the viewer. Uh, But the passage did get me thinking about efforts that I've made in my past to make a name for myself. And I've got a high school junior now, and I'm having some flashbacks to being a high school senior and being like, yeah! I'm a National Merit Scholarship winner. I've got some fives on some AP tests. Heading to a cool university and a cool major, and I'm on my way. (laughs) And now look at me. Now, you know know, the funny thing about all that stuff is um, the the minute that the scholarship is won, Uh, and the minute that you get the credit on your transcript for the AP tests, uh, it doesn't matter anymore, and nobody cares. You just sound sad if you bring it up, like I just did. (laughs) And then my my great school, who am I going to impress at Berkeley by being at Berkeley? (laughs) And then I didn't love my major and stuff began to deteriorate further from there, and that's a whole nother story. Now, I changed majors, and I I studied how to analyze poetry under a guy named Tom Gunn, who is a big deal, and doubtless you haven't heard of him. And I, I studied writing poetry under a guy named Gary Soto, who is kind of a big deal, and you probably haven't heard of him either, though his tamale book is pretty great for Christmas. And in the mid-90s, I'm a few years out of school, and I'm, I'm writing outside my day job regularly. And, and there's a whole other way that I can make a name for myself. So I, uh, I, I submitted some poems to poetry journals, and they, they published them in spring and fall of 95. Whew! But better than that was I wrote this book called Managing an Inherited Netware Network. Anybody here ever used a Netware Network? Okay, (laughs) ah, Daniel Wilburn. Okay, so so Daniel and I can geek out and the rest of you can go, what is that? And and you're already seeing the problem with finding your image in this stuff, but that's okay, because in 96, I wrote an even bigger book, so it must be better, right? Migrating from Netware to Windows NT, okay, out with the old, in with the new. because those are both in big use these days, right? Last one, the the last gasp, 2001, for a variety of reasons I'm not going to go into at this time, but Linux for Windows addicts. (laughs) A 12-step program for habitual Windows users. And 2001 is quite a while after 1996, and what happened in between was I got married and suddenly I didn't want my identity to be in books that I knew were going to be, you know, used to make me not still as tall as Joe. (laughs) 
The other issue that I could see coming was that there weren't going to be many computer books anymore, or at least there weren't going to be ones that made it worthwhile to spend all my time when I had a bride who would have appreciated some time too. So it was another place that I thought maybe I could make my name, and it was kind of empty. Today's passage is a poetic little narrative, and I will try to mention here and there some of the poetry in there, but because I'm not terribly great at Hebrew, and you're probably, most of you, even worse, we're not going to land there much, okay? But here's the fundamental idea. Making a name for ourselves is not what God built us for. He's got better plans than the name we can make for ourselves. The name I make for myself is not what God is looking for me to do. So let's get rolling. Verse one, now the whole world had one language and common speech. One language, one set of words is kind of what, what the Hebrew says. No barriers by culture, no barriers by language. Can you imagine? Can you imagine never running into somebody who had a completely foreign tongue, understanding of the world, upbringing, traditions? I can't. I mean, as lily-white as some environments I've been in have been, we still had really different families of origin, and there's always this fundamental difference that creeps in. But after these people come together, and after they move together, they come to a stop. Verse 2, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So far, so good, but... This contradicts what God has been telling mankind to do all along. Back to Adam and Eve in uh, Genesis 1.28, and he repeated this to Noah and his sons in Genesis 9.1. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. He didn't say park in one place and be awesome together. This one people are doing the exact opposite thing that God told them to do. Isn't that ridiculous? They're not spreading, as he told them. They're settling. Verse 3. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So they can speak to each other, and they do, and apparently they are capable of collaborating well, for they say, Come, let's. And this phrase is sort of a call to action, collective action, and it's part of a, a, a thing that's going to appear again. Now, Robert Alter is a scholar whose uh, sense for Hebrew, the, the language of it, is gorgeous. And he notes that what they're literally saying, if you transliterate it, it's something like, let's brick bricks and burn for a burning. Um, just to note that we're missing details that, that give us a sense for what's, what the flavor of the passage is because we're reading it in a translation. It's tightly written. It's like a poem. It's, it's like, no, it's better than that. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. God says to fill the earth, and they say, come, let us defy God's command. Uh, that's not going to work out great. And this made me think of the, this passage of towers, and we've got, we've got some towers, and if I said to you, um, hey, Mike's sister Michelle, 
the Salesforce tower behind you reaches to the heavens. I think we have a picture. Uh, would you think that I literally meant that if she got up on the top of that building that she'd be able to, you know, have an encounter with God? Or would I simply mean it's the biggest building in the San Francisco skyline? It's a figure of speech. It's hyperbole. But it's also amping up defiance of God. So they're using a phrase, they don't think, the ancients weren't morons, okay? Seriously, there's a bunch of stuff, oh, they didn't understand how babies were made, and that's why they thought there was a virgin birth. They understood how babies were made. They knew that that was ridiculous, and yet it happened. There's a lot of instances like that. This is one of them. They didn't think they could literally reach the heavens. What they said was, we can make something impressive, look how big we'll be. And the threat that they're concerned about is literally the fulfillment of God's command to them. That's threatening because it's going to disperse them. How are they going to prevent scattering? Well, they're going to build a city. That makes sense. How does a tower help? Honestly, I, I don't have a lot of guesses here, but the one thing that comes to mind is if you, if you take as a given that they don't trust God, that they don't take him at his word, then maybe in the wake of a recent flood, you'd want to have a building that you could escape into as the water is rising. And seriously, that was all I came up with. So if you came up with something else, I'd be glad to hear it after the service. Let me ask you a couple of questions before we continue. And I'd encourage you to write these down, take a picture, reflect on it in some way. Which of God's commands that you are aware of are you afraid to fulfill or unwilling to fulfill? And which of God's promises that you're aware of are you not so sure that you trust? Okay, and I don't expect that coming out of the gate that everybody will have an answer to that question. Um, and I don't want to prompt you by giving you some of my answers. But if you want to tell me about yours, I'll tell you about mine. Send me an email, not to Tim at, but Mike at covalley.com. <clears throat> and, and let me know so I can pray with you. The rest of the passage is going to be focusing on God's response to this situation that's been created. He's first going to examine what is happening, and then he's going to anticipate the consequences it will have. And all of this is kind of a foolish way of describing God's thought process, because God being all-knowing is not going to have to, let's go examine, okay, now let's put on our thinking cap and ponder. The narrative explains it that way because that's what we would do. It's showing us that, that there's uh, analysis going on, even if it's in a divine way that doesn't resemble ours. And this process of assessment is for the hearer's benefit. Let's look at how God examines the facts. Genesis 11:5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. What does it mean for God to come down? I mean, it's actually a little bit of a puzzle that the disciple Jesus loved in our John study uh, said that God said that, or Jesus said that God is spirit in John 4. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says this, uh, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. 
there's a decided not like usness to how God is described. So what does coming down mean? Well, okay, this dominating tower made by, by bricks, not the stone that was common to the lands of Canaan. Here they had to make their own bricks. They found tar and used it as a mortar to put them together. This is technology. They're, they're transforming things in their environment to build something cool. Uh, as a Silicon Valley denizen, I'm stoked about that. It's going to reach to the heavens. Yeah! But God still has to come down to see it. As impressive as it looked from the ground, God was like, I guess I got to get my suitcase and head on down to that mighty tower of theirs. It falls short. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking... uh, Flew, flew to Oregon recently and flying out of San Jose, one of my, my friends took a picture of the, the Ring campus that Apple has. And it looks so tiny on his phone, you know, but if you stand right up there, it's pretty big. So we have a picture of a, the top of a pyramid. And I don't know if you've seen these, people have drones that go over and they take pictures. And uh, man, from the side, they look really impressive. From the top, you know, meh. But this verse is structurally the turning point of the passage. And I've got a slide that that shows sort of how things pinch in. And the first half of the passage comes in, and it's talking about what people are doing. And then at this point, God says, okay, let's check it out. And from there on, it's talking about what God is doing. So that's, that's that. Let's move on to verse six. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. One language it said in verse one, one people it says in verse six, and just, you know, for trivia buffs or people who want to have that exegetical nugget that they take away, this is the first use of the, word, the Hebrew word am, in Genesis. It comes here. Last week, we said nation a bunch of times. Goy, goyim, nations. People who aren't Jewish is now what it's primarily used for and in the Hebrew scriptures. Right here, instead of emphasizing the divisions of nations, it's emphasizing the oneness of this people. Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Is not a threat to God. It's a threat to humanity. You tracking with that? It's kind of important. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God is not afraid for himself. What God is concerned about is that there is no depravity that these people can't accomplish as long as they're together. No depth that they can't sink to together, which is kind of a terrifying thought because we think of harmony and unity as a good thing. And it can be a good thing, but it isn't necessarily. And it made me think about the framers of the US Constitution going, you know, people kind of suck. And anytime there's power and people get to use it, they kind of suck worse. So we'll have a legislative, we'll have an executive, and we'll have a judicial. And it won't maybe keep things balanced, but at least it ought to control how far out of balance it gets at any given time. And you can debate on your own time how successful that's been historically or how it is now. In our passage, here's how God steps in. 
verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. They won't talk anymore. God's call to action here, come let us, is going to undo the two come let us's that happened when the humans did it in verses 3 and 4. God's going to intervene, and it's got consequences that can't be undone by the people. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Such a big, vital part of their plan, and, and they stopped. In verse 2, they settled. In verse 8, God scatters. And their city and its tower stand there like a building on Castro Street that I remember when I was growing up. We'd drive by, and it was vacant. And people know this, this building, 444 Castro Street. It's sort of the biggest one on, on the street in Mountain View. Um, downtown Mountain View with all the little shops, and then you got this waffle-looking behemoth in, in the middle. And what I remember was usual downtown development snafus, and funding was a problem, and I think there were lawsuits, and parking was an issue, and in all the squabbling, they finished it, and it was empty. Except... What I vividly recall is driving along there, looking at the German shepherds barking at the windows, and that was all that was going on in this building. It was just empty because they, they didn't have their stuff together. Now, this tower in Shinar's plane, this is before, I assume, German shepherds were developed, so I have no idea you know, how they guarded it, but... I better move on. The point is, the point, the point's always good. They were one people together in one rebellion against God, and now they're scattered. They were on the same page, and now they're doing what God told them to do in the first place. They had a plan, and they were implementing it, presumably well, and it got overturned. Verse 9 says, that's why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And notice that their response was dictated by God. He confused their language. Verse 8 and 9 say he scattered them over the, all the earth, fulfilling his command and making what we read last week in the table of the nations in Genesis 10 a reality. They could have done that on their own, but he got them back on his track, his idea, his agenda, his plan. Now that we've gotten to the end of the narrative, I should just address this. People sometimes ask me if I really believe that this story happened. Okay, could this story be historically accurate? Yes. Could it be a parable? Yes. And I think this passage has clear messages I think would be valuable either way. If you're wrestling with what's true, though, I would say this is not the passage to start in. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that's where to land. That's the decision to make. If those didn't happen, we are all literally wasting our time this morning. If, if the Tower of Babel is a story and not a historical fact, we're not wasting our time because God is still explaining his intentions and how they affect humanity. And we're going to get a better sense of who he is because we have more to go on than just that story because Jesus came 
intervened in the course of our human existence and made things different. The one thing I will say is I do think it's weird how many languages, um, the one I'm remembering at the moment, uh, in Greek it's Babel, in, in Norwegian it's Babel. Um, there are, most languages have a, a word for this concept, but in a surprising number of them, it's Babel. Make of that what you will. And while you're making things, think about plans that you're making, that you've made. Maybe yours turned out better than my, my writing career or my, my awesome tiny window of academic excellence. But even if your plan is to sit around in your PJs with a cup of cocoa signing up for a health plan, um, we all make plans. Uh, in this passage, we've seen God has authority, God has plans, God has purpose. How do we respond to that? We have a couple of options at least, and the, the first one is mistrust of God and anger with God. And being angry with God is not just a possible response, it's a common response. When my plans are disrupted, I'm blaming whoever, whomever I can. Sometimes it's myself and sometimes it's other people, and if I can tag it on God, I will certainly try to do that. Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever watched your plans crumbling, your dreams dying, your identity be shattered? Many of us in this room can think of a specific scenario where that's happened. What happens when you respond to the breaking of expectations with a response of being angry to God? Well, all kinds of things happen. Uh, but harmful behaviors is a typical one. And that can basically be by throwing effectively a grown-up tantrum. Why did you do this, God? And I'm making fun, but I've done that. Why did you let this happen? It could be escapism through substances. Very common, common interaction uh, response when we get angry at God and we need somehow to tune out. Okay, other activities that can't help us. Could be taking out what's angry at God on other people because they're closer. We don't need a tower to miss them. We can miss them nearby. It could also be self-harm, showing God. I'll show God, if, if he's not going to give me what I want, then I'm going to be intentionally self-destructive. And look what you made me do, God. It doesn't make much sense, but being angry at God doesn't make much sense. As a response to a stimulus, I totally understand it. As a place to land, it's really, really unhelpful because all of these behaviors can lead to ruin. Being angry with God fundamentally calls us out for not understanding who God is, having wrong ideas about his authority, his character, his actions. And those wrong understandings about God give us a false understanding of what's good for us. So here's another possibility. We could cooperate with God instead of getting angry with him. And I always have to say this, uh, cooperating with God isn't how we get on God's team, okay? We, we don't behave ourselves into the kingdom of God. Cooperating with God comes from being on God's team, and that happens through the work of Jesus. And the work of Jesus accomplishes this by a cool inversion that John Stott describes this way. It's a, a longish little, little bit here. 
Try to follow along. The, <laughs> the concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is a person substituting themselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for a person. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God, on the other hand, sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives that belong to God alone, but God in his grace accepts penalties that belong to men and women alone. Here's what Paul asks that God will do in believers in Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, to know the unknowable. Isn't that crazy? That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And that's how Jesus has made one people by uniting us in Christ so that I can love Marie. I can love Alex. I can love Melanie. I so that we can love one another in a way that's a different experience than we could ever have just because we share technology. And although the one language era is over, there, there's a, a hint of what's to come in the prophet Zephaniah. He talks about a time when we'll all be purified and serve him together. Here's what he says, Zephaniah 3.9, then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. This isn't a new picture of how it's going to be. The prophets have been saying all kinds of people are going to gather together and God's going to be the one who unites them. And in Zephaniah, the issue isn't that we don't speak each other's language. It's that we don't have a tongue that's clean enough to talk to God. And Jesus has fixed that problem. And I think Zephaniah's prophecy is going to come more true later. But don't forget what happened in our Acts series, where we got a taste of this. Acts 2, 7 through 11, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And then it goes through a bunch of people groups. And then at the end of verse 11, it says, we hear them all declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So God doesn't say, I'm going to give you one language. He says, in my presence, which is going to dwell with you, believers, you are going to be able to connect, not like they did back in the plain of Shinar, but the way I intended you to interact, which is in community with me. It's bananas. The disciples, they're newly powered by the Holy Spirit. They're praising God. They're understood by everybody. They each have their own tongue, but what united them was God's presence. And an even bigger miracle happened after Pentecost. 
The church springs into existence. It grows around the proclamation of the good news that Jesus, the Messiah of God, the Son of Father God, has walked the earth. He's been crucified. He was alive again. He returned to the Father in heaven. And the love that you can experience in a church body, that allows us to serve God shoulder to shoulder, as Zephaniah described, guided by God's Spirit. Let's return for a moment to Ephesians 3.18 in the middle of the passage I read before. He's praying that, that they may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That becomes the focus of everything that Paul is hoping for, for his, uh, his friends in Ephesus. It's, it's not our cool buildings that unite us, right? Right. Uh, it's not similar upbringings. It's not our similar jobs. It's not that we are all learning, I don't know, something else. It's that we're all together learning about the enormous scope and the gigantic weight, the massive power of Christ's presence and experiencing his love more deeply and more together. And that's why we're kind of a one chord song here at Church of the Valley the gospel is what we're playing because every time we comprehend again what God has done for us in Christ, every reminder of God's character and the goodness of his plan and the grace he has shown us by giving us his son, we draw closer. We draw closer to him. We draw closer to one another. And if you're impatient for a day to come in which we aren't constantly bickering among ourselves, where people aren't literally slaughtering each other, or figuratively, for that matter, been on Twitter recently. I'm telling you, God provides for harmony today, but perfect harmony later. Here's what the prophet Micah says. Chapter 4, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. You want a temple? You want a tower? God's place. It will be exalted above the hills, the traditional place of pagan worship. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will not need their swords and their spears anymore. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will be, make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God, and that's going to last forever and ever. That's God's plan. And in the meantime, he's got us where he's got us our housing situation, our family connections, our school, our work, our neighborhood, our friends. Wherever it is that you and I are, God's got us there for a reason. And because Jesus has not only solved the problem of our sin, he made it possible for us to be spirit-controlled. That means we aren't stuck being rebels against God. Let me sum up. I said before that misbeliefs about God make us wrong about what's good for us. And my old nature, and yours too, wants to be dead to God. And that's how every one of us starts. 
But once Christ has become our master and we depend on him, we want the will of God. When we're alive to God and living in him, we love and trust God. We can read his word and comprehend it. We can learn more about who he is and comprehend at least a little bit his character. When we're alive to God, we can stand on God's truth and we can replace lies that we used to believe with what's true about God and what's true about ourselves. When we're alive to God, we can take responsibility for the decisions that we make, even when it turns out they weren't the best decisions. We don't have to be defensive because we are in a relationship with God that sustains us. We don't have to be rebellious for the same reason. When we're alive to God, we can love others in the same way, lovingly telling them what God says is true about them and their reality. And until we hit the day Micah wrote about, when we're unafraid and walk freely in God's paths, we're going to have to pay attention to when we're letting the dead, old, tower-building versions of ourselves call the shots. But the new version of us, Christ has made, and it makes us alive to God in Christ, and it's equipped to do that. Malik, if you'd come on up, I'm going to pray. God, I thank you that you didn't leave us where our natural inclinations took us, and that your intention all along was for something good, and we just didn't appreciate it. And you intervened. You intervened on the plain of Shinar, and you intervene with us today. And I ask for those in the room who aren't so sure about that intervention, that, God, you would allow the hope for a name or the anger or the frustration that's an impediment to that relationship happening, I pray that you'd bring that down. And would you take us at Church of the Valley and scatter us into the places that you've brought us, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces. And I ask God that you would make us people out of our love for you, out of our experience of your redemption, would be willing to sit with people who are having a harder time with the plan you've got them on and love them and support them through that. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.